This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hey everybody, this is Levi Proctor. I'm one of your TraumaCast moderators hailing from the University of Kentucky in Lexington. Today we're going to have a TraumaCast from our uh, East TraumaCast series. Uh, It's going to be with Dr. Joshua Levine. He's an associate professor of neurology at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's the chief of neurocritical care. We also have a co-moderator, Dr. Andrew Bernard. He's my trauma medical director, uh, and he's going to be helping us with this discussion today. We're going to be talking about the latest iteration of the American College of Surgeons uh, Trauma Quality and Improvement Project. They recently put out their latest iteration of the best practices in the management of traumatic brain injury. I'll have this PDF available on the website for you all to refer to during the TraumaCast, as well as two other great review articles on neurocritical care in the traumatically brain-injured patient. But first, I'd like to thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Levine. This is a great honor to have your uh, expertise and insight in this topic. Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, join you. We have a a pretty wide audience of people that listen, but for my pre-hospital provider community, Uh, they are the ones risking their lives themselves to take care of these patients. With the latest iteration of the guidelines, it mainly focuses on what we do with them in the ICU or, you know, when they show up in the trauma bay or the recess area. Are there certain targets, like resuscitation targets in terms of vital signs, saturations, uh, capnography, airway in and out of the field that we should be striving for in our pre-hospital setting based on the recent guidelines or from your all's standpoint? uh, What advice can we give them for our pre-hospital providers? Yeah, I I think the pre-hospital setting is vital and crucial for the care of patients with severe traumatic brain injury. I think if we know anything about traumatic brain injury, it's that hypoxia and hypotension are deadly, uh, especially in combination with each other. And uh, really, that's probably all we know for sure about traumatic brain injury at this point. And I think that in the pre-hospital setting, um, you know, uh, the priority should be uh, assumption that the neck is broken or there's an unstable C-spine and stabilization of the C-spine. And then uh, whatever measures uh, are necessary to ensure that hypotension and hypoxia are avoided. Now, whether or not the patient should be intubated in the field is a matter of controversy at the moment. Um, And current recommendations suggest that uh, orotracheal intubation should only be undertaken by pre-hospital providers that have a lot of experience in doing so. Otherwise, the patient should be bag mask ventilated until they arrive at an appropriate trauma center where uh, endotracheal intubation can take place. So I think really... The take-home points for the pre-hospital setting are stabilize the cervical spine, avoid hypoxia, and avoid hypotension. In terms of the when they when they show up to the pre-hospital, I mean, I'm sorry, to the resuscitation area, a lot of the goals of treatment are basically to make the person appear normal from a vital sign standpoint, like such as their saturations, their blood pressure. But they do have rather specific targets, such as the saturation 95%, uh, 
and a systolic blood pressure of 100. You know, classically, we've always been taught, you know, people need to have good oxygen saturations, and it's a common theme to have someone at 100% saturation. But is that necessarily a good thing in this person who's acutely injured with a traumatic brain injury to have a, a relative hyperoxia in that situation? Well, um, are you asking whether oxygen levels should be made supranormal or quote-unquote normal uh, for a non-injured patient? Supranormal. You know, the, most of us, you know, are okay at a saturation of 95%, but it seems like there's usually a large focus if you're not paying attention that everyone's okay with allowing the person to have a SAT of 100 and a PO2 of 250. You know, uh, is that something that we should be cautioning our providers on and when we take care of that traumatic brain injury? Right. You know, I, I don't think there's any role for hyperoxia or normal baric hyperoxia you know, that's been an appealing concept for a long time. And across a wide variety of brain injuries, when it's been studied, it's never been shown to be of benefit and may even be of harm. And so there's no reason to, uh, you know, uh, make the oxygen levels supranormal. Uh, the current recommendations are that uh, the PaO2 be maintained above 60 Systolic blood pressure be maintained above 90 millimeters of mercury. Uh, I don't think there's any reason to tr try and achieve targets that are much higher than that. Uh, now, you know, it, it sort of goes without saying that these numbers that are provided in guidelines are really based on population averages. And it's very difficult, if not impossible, in the pre-hospital setting to individualize those targets. I think a lot of the focus of modern neurocritical care, uh, as is reflected in the ACS uh, best practices or guidelines, is an attempt to individualize these targets once they're in the ICU. But in the pre-hospital setting, I think those targets are reasonable ones to try to achieve and trying to maintain supranormal values of those uh, parameters are probably not advisable. Uh, in, in terms of there's other uh, guidelines that they state in terms of uh, blood work measurements, such as your hemoglobin, platelets, glucose. You know, uh, as trauma surgeons, we're typically very anti-blood transfusion unless you're bleeding to death. Uh, uh, so we, we sometimes have a hard time reconciling dealing with a numerically out-of-whack number such as a low hemoglobin in the hemodynamically stable patient with no evidence of, you know, tissue ischemia or cellular shock, but then we have a guideline that says, well, their hemoglobin is right on the cusp at 7, they have a traumatic brain injury. It becomes somewhat difficult to know, do I just give them a transfusion because they have a brain injury in the acute phase, or do we do that early on and then four or five days later if they have a hemoglobin that's around 7? And they're otherwise fine. Do we leave that alone? It's, it seems like a floating target. Like, how do we how do we know if we're giving them enough oxygen delivery uh, in that situation? I think you're right. It is a uh, matter of controversy and debate. And the truth is, we have no idea what the optimal hemoglobin threshold is in TBI. And even more than that, there probably is no such thing as an optimal hemoglobin threshold in general. It probably varies from individual to individual. Um, my practice is not to transfuse uh, unless it's there's a very compelling reason to do so. For example, as you mentioned, they're bleeding. 
Uh, if the hemoglobin is 6.9, I'm probably not going to give them a transfusion. I think that the only thing we do know is that in the general critical care population, there's mounting evidence that uh, both anemia is harmful, but also transfusion is harmful. And, uh, you know, I, I think we don't have a lot of specific data in the TBI population other than perhaps one study which compared a restrictive versus more liberal transfusion policy. And, uh, you know, the, the results of that study certainly didn't support transfusing to a threshold of 10 or something like that to improve uh, brain oxygenation. So I, I think it's, it's subject to individual physician judgment. And in my practice, we have a fairly restrictive transfusion policy for, for traumatic brain injury and other brain, forms of brain injury as well. In terms of the, the – they have very strict – or not – they have clearly defined uh, need for uh, ventricular monitoring for ICP pressure in their uh, guidelines, uh, basically in a tiered management system. It's relatively straightforward, and I think we all appreciate and recognize their their recommendations. But the one that we often can struggle with from the trauma surgeon standpoint is – who do we get the neurosurgeons or ask them to place a ventric or ask their opinion if they think it's indicated for people going to the operating room immediately for extracranial procedures that may be in the operating room a while? Say they have, you know, bad liver injury and spleen and they also have a bad pelvis and femur and you want to try to get all of that taken care of as quickly as you can. Who are the group of people that should be considered for having a ventricular device placed? Is it based on their head scan? Is it based on their EMV? Uh, it, it's something that is somewhat of a moving target, it appears, and it doesn't really give us a lot of good direction for that. Yeah, you know, I was a little surprised, to be honest, about the recommendations for uh, that seem pretty firm for ventriculostomy placement and, and for how to manage the ventriculostomy uh, by keeping it clamped most of the time and measuring pressure intermittently. This is certainly uh, a matter of opinion. There's no uh, evidence and certainly no level one evidence that that's the right thing to do. And it, as you may be aware, uh, you know, recently the whole idea of managing patients uh, with an invasive ICP uh, monitor has been called into question. There was a a uh, fairly large randomized trial conducted in South America in Bolivia and Ecuador where patients with traumatic brain injury were randomized to uh, having an invasive ICP monitor inserted and managing them uh, by targeting a, an ICP threshold versus the, the other group who did not have an ICP monitor in and who were managed through clinical examination and CAT scans, and there was really no difference in outcome between the two groups. I think it's true that if you're going to put a monitor in, a ventriculostomy is considered the gold standard, and, and that might perhaps be why they're advocating for ventriculostomy. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of uh, patients with severe traumatic brain injury have very swollen brains. The ventricles become compressed. And the target for insertion in the ventricles is, is not that straightforward often. And so, uh, you know, many centers use parenchymal ICP monitors because they're easier to insert. They have a slightly lower complication rate, uh, and you don't have to worry about not hitting a ventricle. Uh, so I, I think this um, recommendation is, is, 
uh, largely uh, opinion. I think in general, patients who are comatose uh, or who have uh, brain swelling with effacement of the basal cisterns, in other words, impending herniation, are candidates for ICP monitors. Um, in the guidelines here, they state that if you're comatose but really don't have any visible injury, you don't necessarily need a monitor, and I think that's uh, subject to debate. And they also state that patients who are awake but have a lesion that looks threatening or that has a high likelihood of progressing to a lesion that might cause herniation uh, should be considered for monitors. Um, you know, I think these, this is where the expert opinion uh, comes into play in these guidelines rather than level one evidence. And so, you know, I guess if you want a, a, a rough rule of thumb, I would certainly consider putting a monitor in anyone who has a CAT scan that suggests perhaps intracranial pressure might be high. Those are patients with very large mass lesions in the brain, either extra-axial hematomas like subdurals or epidurals or large hemorrhagic contusions. Uh, anyone that has what looks like diffuse brain swelling uh, or effacement of the basal cisterns uh, and who might be herniating. I think those are all very reasonable candidates for invasive ICP monitors. But again, this is sort of opinion, and I think uh, the uh, the tides are sort of slowly changing uh, in opinion with respect to ICP monitoring. And kind of to segue based on the ICP monitoring, I mean, the first uh, tier of this is basically standard stuff we all do with someone who has a ventriculostomy to try to decrease uh, an intracranial pressure target that they provide of 20 to 25. But after, if those things fail and we still have elevated intracranial pressure and we feel that it's uh, changing their neuro exam or that it's too high, then we're asked to determine if the brain has its maintained its cerebral autoregulation. And then the trauma surgeons get a deer in the headlights look. They're like, uh, what are they talking about? How are we supposed to do this? Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of different yeah. monitors. So to us, we read this and we're like, well, what does this even mean? Right, and and I think that's a reasonable reaction. Um, this, to me, is perhaps the most surprising part of these guidelines, the strong endorsement of attempting to measure autoregulation. Uh, you know, in my opinion, um, the, the concept of autoregulation is a very complex one. And actually measuring it at the bedside is even more complicated. And the methods that they talk about for doing so are not really measuring autoregulation. They're sort of an approximation of autoregulation. And I don't think they're necessarily ready for clinical prime time. I think there's a lot of interest in perhaps studying how uh, regulation um, impacts, autoregulation impacts outcome. But in order to actually do it at the bedside, it's very cumbersome. There are multiple methods of trying to approximate autoregulation. They all have very significant limitations, and very few centers are able to do it. So we can, uh, if you'd like, sort of back up and talk about some of these uh, concepts uh, from the beginning, because I think they're a little bit complex and probably ones that most people who take care of brain injury don't think about on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's entirely important to kind of go over that because there, there's many ways to approach it based on cerebral blood flow, intracranial pressure. You know, there's all many different methods, whether it's static or dynamic in terms of determining autoregulation. So uh, we would that, that would be highly uh, appreciated in, in a discussion like this to kind of figure out what if it, if it is appropriate, how would we even go about doing it? Sure. So starting from the beginning, um, the brain has a mechanism that maintains a constant blood flow across a wide range of systemic blood pressures. Um, and uh, how it does so is not quite clear. What we know is that between uh, a wide range of blood pressures, maybe uh, let's say 60 millimeters of mercury uh, to 160 millimeters of mercury, uh, the blood flow is constant, and as blood pressure increases, there's successive uh, vasoconstriction. And if you're above the upper limit of autoregulation, uh, blood flow becomes pressure passive, and it rises as blood pressure rises. And if you're below the lower limit of autoregulation, uh, blood flow decreases as blood pressure decreases. Now, that's one form of autoregulation, and we call that pressure autoregulation. The brain also uh, has other forms of autoregulation as well. There's metabolic autoregulation. So, for example, if the metabolic rate of the tissue goes up, the blood vessels will dilate, and that's probably related to uh, you know, lactate production, that might be a signal for uh, vasodilation. Uh, it's, it's really the, the details of how it works are less clear than the fact that it does work. And then there are even other forms of what you might call autoregulation. The, the, the blood vessels in the brain are innervated by the sympathetic nervous system, and they control vessel diameter. And then there's uh, re receptors that sense uh, carbon dioxide tension, and the vessels can constrict and dilate in response to uh, carbon dioxide tension. So there are many forms of what you might call autoregulation, but what they're focusing on in this guideline is pressure autoregulation, the ability of the br normal brain to maintain constant blood flow across a wide range of blood pressures. Now, in order to actually measure autoregulation, what you need to do is measure blood flow and measure blood pressure. And we can measure blood pressure pretty well. Uh, we can measure it systemically or even blood pressure of the brain by calculating cerebral perfusion pressure. But what we can't do very easily is measure cerebral blood flow. So people have come up with all sorts of ways to approximate autoregulation, and uh, they mentioned two in the guideline. One is called uh, the pressure uh, reactivity index, I believe, and basically yep. that's relying on the fact that when blood pressure goes up, uh, cerebral blood volume goes up, and ICP goes up, and, and that's if there were sort of no ability to autoregulate. Right. If the vessel's size remains static, if you increase the blood pressure, you get more blood volume. Uh, or if the vessel's dilated with higher pressure, you get increased blood volume and therefore increased blood uh, ICP. And so that, that sort of led to the idea that if ICP goes up when blood pressure goes up, 
that patient is not auto-regulating very well. Now, um, you know, that that's maybe true some of the time, but uh, that's not auto-regulation. That's an approximation of auto-regulation. You know, auto-regulation is looking at the correlation between a flow and a pressure, and pressure reactivity index is looking at the correlation between two different pressures, ICP and blood pressure. Um, some of the assumptions that are made, for example, is that brain compliance is constant, and that probably isn't true a lot of the time. So in any event, that's what pressure reactivity index is. At a very basic level, if you're in the ICU and you notice that ICP skyrockets every time there's a surge in blood pressure, you might conclude that maybe autoregulation is not working so well. And we see that occasionally. A lot of uh, TBI patients have what we call hyperemic intracranial hypertension, where their ICP goes up uh, because their blood pressure is too high, and perhaps that's due to lack of autoregulation, and they're probably best managed by lowering the blood pressure, which is a pretty scary thing to do when the ICP is high, because we're all taught that if the ICP is high, uh, the brain is starving for blood. It's ischemic, and the last thing you'd think about doing is lowering the blood pressure. But there are cert certain circumstances, hyperemic intracranial hypertension in particular, where lowering the blood pressure might make sense physiologically. So that's one crude way at, at the bedside of sort of guessing that autoregulation is not working. But what they're talking about is a lot more sophisticated. It involves basically having a computer track ICP and blood pressure in real time continuously and then performing a mathematical operation on those variables by doing a moving correlation over time and coming up with, uh, you know, basically it, it can tell you whether the two variables, blood pressure and ICP, correlate with each other, which they shouldn't. If they do correlate well, they assume that means no autoregulation or disturbed autoregulation. And if they don't correlate very well, it means that autoregulation is working. Now, you know, there are a few centers that are capable of doing that, that have a computer that can run that mathematical operation, uh, you know, uh, in, in the ICU over time. But that's certainly not widely available. It's, again, an approximation of autoregulation. It, certainly makes assumptions that may or may not be true. Um, and so it's a little surprising to me that that sort of thing was being um, pushed for clinical use. I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily feasible for centers to all be doing this. Uh, does that make sense, or is there anything yeah. you'd like to clarify about that? No, and, and that was kind of my question, because I'm imagining being in the ICU at 3 o'clock in the morning and how am I going to have the resources and, you know, the appropriate training for residents and, you know, and, and nurses and everyone that's involved taking care of these patients? How are we going to know how to even put this data, get it, and then act on it? Uh, because from what I've read and seen, it seems like it's a, to do it the way they're describing requires all of this data and informatics that you're describing. So it, it seems a little out there for, for most of us to be able to accomplish this goal. I agree with you. I think out there is a good way to describe it. I think it's very interesting and potentially clinically useful in the future. 
but I'm not sure that it's feasible or even the right thing to do at this point in time. I, I think it's an area of active research and should probably stay that way until we have more clinical information that suggests that it's the, that, that measuring this and responding to it actually helps patients. There is no data that taking this um, pressure reactivity index or other approximations of autoregulation and managing patients with that information improves outcome. Um, you know, I, I think in general, in traumatic brain injury, we're in a tough spot because I think we have just enough data in the literature to suggest that we're not managing these patients optimally the right way, but we don't yet have enough data to tell us how to manage them optimally. And there are a lot of ideas out there. A lot of them involve advanced technology to monitor various uh, physiologic parameters like brain oxygen tension, brain biochemistry, uh, blood flow, uh, but we really don't have data, firm data, to suggest that managing patients using those things improves outcome. There's a lot of preliminary data that looks exciting and promising, uh, but in my opinion, you know, these need to be used to justify randomized trials where we uh, establish more definitively whether targeting other physiologic parameters works or doesn't work. Hey, Dr. Levine, do, do you think that uh, do you think that this sort of uh, autoregulation measurement is closer on the horizon, or do you think metabolic measures like what you described, like with a microdialysate uh, catheter, right. microdialysate catheter, is that closer? Which is which is closer to it? Well, I think the parameter that's been studied the most is brain oxygen tension, so PBTO2, or the partial pressure of uh, oxygen in the interstitial space of brain tissue. And this is typically measured with uh, – there are a couple of technologies out there, but the most established one is a Clark electrode. That I guess the brand name would be Lycox for that. Um, and – I think that's probably, of all of the advanced monitors, the one that's in most widespread use right now. Um, I think that, again, like with all of the other monitors, there's a lot of retrospective data suggesting that, uh, you know, perhaps uh, brain O2 is an important physiologic variable and might even be predictive of, of outcome. There's really no uh, firm prospective data to suggest that treating patients by using brain oxygen as a target improves outcome. There was some progress recently. Uh, there was a trial called BOOST2, uh, which randomized patients uh, with TBI to being managed by conventional means where ICP and CPP were targets to a group where not only was ICP and CPP targeted, but also brain O2 is targeted. This was more of a feasibility study, and it showed that it's feasible. There was a very, very complicated clinical algorithm for dealing with these perturbations, but they showed that it was feasible. And there was a strong trend towards better outcome in the group that was managed with brain oxygen monitors. So that's a good start, and I think it justifies doing uh, the next uh, trial, which will look specifically at outcome. But that's the closest we've gotten uh, with these advanced monitors. Uh, microdialysis is very appealing because it measures the only thing in my mind that really matters, which is 
Are you delivering, is the metabolic health of the brain tissue uh, good, bad, or somewhere in between? Um, you know, the way I look at this in general is that the goal of all resuscitation, no matter what organ you're talking about, is to make sure that you're delivering enough fuel, usually oxygen and glucose, to meet metabolic demand of whatever tissue you're talking about. And, you know, right now we're stuck measuring pressure inside of the head, which is very far removed from how's the tissue actually doing. And something like microdialysis tells you, uh, you know, really well how the tissue is doing, or at least a little piece of tissue is doing. And so I think that has a lot of promise for development in the future. But I'm not convinced that any of these tools should be widely employed right now before we have the data to suggest that it's the right thing to do. Uh, I think we have a, a strong history in this field of putting the cart before the horse and sort of jumping onto new technologies before we fully understand them or have studied them. And ICP monitoring may be a good example of that. There's still no study in existence showing that lowering ICP improves outcome. I don't think neurocritical care is the only field in which we've uh, we've done that, Dr. Levine. I agree with you, though. Okay, can I go back and ask you a question about transfusion? Sure. Uh, and it's a bit of a theoretical question. How much do you think multi-institutional research, I'm thinking of the PROTECT trial, for example, Yes. Has has triggered the coming together of thought leaders in the field to develop what essentially becomes a consensus guideline. seems to me that's when we really shifted to tolerating hemoglobin of eight among uh, neurotrauma patients uh, around the country. What do you think about that in general, uh, multi-institutional research being uh, eventually a driver for, for, uh, for practice, practice guidelines? Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I'll, you know, I think – as we do things like that, we're overturning dogma, and it's very hard to overturn dogma. I mean, if you had said, you know, 50 years ago that giving blood to someone who was anemic was harmful, uh, you know, they would be stupefied. But, I, you know, I think we now have a fairly good consensus that uh, red blood cell transfusion uh, can be harmful, and I think the only way to build that sort of consensus is to do these large, multi-institutional, maybe even multinational studies where thought leaders get together and, and uh, figure this stuff out. That was that was sort of what happened with the Boost trial, where you know it was sort of multi-institutional, um, and um, you know I think a lot of hard work and thought went into designing the algorithms, and you know people recognize that we need to study this stuff and. Uh, just because we have the technology doesn't mean it's the right technology or that we should use it. We really do have to study it, and I think the way you suggested is the, the only feasible way to do it. Uh, right now, there's a lot of single-center, small studies about just about everything. But, it, you know, at least in our current conception of evidence-based medicine, that's not sufficient to, um, to uh, implement massive change. In, in terms of the... The ICP monitoring, is there in your practice or as a general rule, like kind of when, when do we say enough is enough with even considering what that data is giving us? Is it after four or five days? Is it after a week? Um, cause it's going to reach a point where, you know, it's, 
the information is not going to be helpful and it's only going to cause problems in terms of infectious complications and whatnot. So uh, is it something you rely on your neurosurgeons if they're in place to tell you, hey, we're done with this tool, we can please remove it? Uh, or is it something that as the neurocritical care intensivist, you have the ability to say, yeah, we're done with this device because we're not using the data for anything meaningful? Right. I, you know, we have a very good working uh, relationship with our neurosurgeons, and they're, they're usually decisions that are made together. Um, in general, when we have any monitor in place and we haven't acted on it for over 24 hours, we often decide that we don't need it, in, you know, to be in place anymore and, and, you know, that it's posing more of a risk than a benefit. Um, if we're actively managing the, the numbers we're getting from the monitor, we typically won't take it out. Um, but it's, it's fairly unusual, you know, uh, a week out from TBI to still be dealing with massive intracranial hypertension. If we are, uh, you know, and at least in our institution, by, you know, if it's very prolonged and severe, they've probably had a decompressive craniectomy, you know, and, um, that sort of most of the time fixes the issue. Whether or not that's the right thing to do is also controversial. You know, there was a randomized study showing that, you know, that, that a bifrontal craniectomy did not improve outcome. But I, I think we generally take out monitors when we're no longer using them, and that's often a few days after the initial injury. In terms of salvage therapies, you mentioned one, which is an entirely different topic about the surgical decompression but the other things are things that have been around a long time that I don't see really much of a difference. Uh, but, however, they do bring up, again, the forced hypothermia as a, as a salvage maneuver. The, the thing that a lot of us struggle with is how do you cool them, what do you cool them with, how quickly do you cool them, how long do you leave them cold, and then when do you decide to turn it off and at what rate do you rewarm? Uh, it seems like this is kind of one of the last lines of, you know, things in the tool bag that we can do, but does it – do we really know how to do it correctly, and does it even matter? Those are great questions, and they're ones that have actually been studied. Um, you know, I think that it's a, whether or not you cool a patient really depends on what your goal is. If your goal is to improve outcome, there's really no support in the literature for doing that, and there were two large randomized trials that looked at that and did not show a benefit in terms of long-term outcome for cooling. But what does seem to be true is that in virtually every study that's ever looked at this, and there are many, cooling is quite effective for reducing intracranial pressure. Uh, and so if your goal is just to lower that number, it's reasonable to cool somebody. Um, there's some suggestion from the literature that if you're going to cool a patient with TBI, perhaps 48 hours or more is preferable to less than 48 hours, but that's not something that I would hang my hat on. That's just sort of analyzing data from, from a, a few different studies and looking at trends. So I, I think the real problem that we have is that we all agree that brain injury doesn't stop after the head goes through the windshield or the bat, you know, makes contact with the head, but it continues for a long time after that, and that's what we call secondary injury. The problem is we don't know how long secondary injury occurs for, and so that makes 
decisions about when to stop cooling very difficult. It makes designing trials very difficult because we really don't have a great sense, and it probably varies by individual. And that's sort of one of the justifications for developing these advanced monitors because what they're detecting are sec secondary injuries or secondary insults. So I don't have a good answer for you about how long to cool somebody. Um, and what I can tell you is you probably shouldn't be doing it if your goal is just to sort of uh, improve outcome. You know, so cooling someone right off the bat when they come in to improve outcome doesn't have much support. We do occasionally use it as sort of late-tier therapy for reducing ICP. But, um, you know, again, I'm not sure whether we're accomplishing anything good or not. Um, you know, certainly a craniectomy reduces ICP, but we can't even prove that that improves outcomes. So, you know, I, I'm, you know, it, it helps to lower the ICP number, but what it does above and beyond that, I don't think we know. Um, I will comment that there's one salvage therapy that I was surprised was not on their list, if I remember correctly, and I'm especially surprised given who wrote the guidelines, but it's laparotomy. And, right, um, for the multiple know, compartment syndrome. Well, even even in patients with normal intra-abdominal yep. pressure, if they have very high ICP, it works beautifully. And, yep. um, you know, we've used that. We don't use it commonly. I mean, thoracotomy would do the same thing, but I don't think anyone would choose to do a thoracotomy over a laparotomy. But, I mean, <laughs> opening up either the thoracic or the abdominal compartment and, le you know, leaving it open – will fix any uh, pressure problem in the head. And that's, um, you know, in my mind, that's a, a fairly well-established salvage therapy. I think it should be last line, but it certainly seems to me to be very effective and uh, sh I think should be considered when the patient is deemed salvageable and there's, a, a, you know, an emergency uh, with intracranial hypertension. And so I'm a little surprised that that wasn't even mentioned uh, on the list. Would you consider that in an, al an algorithm before decompressive craniectomy? I mean, to me, I would rather have my abdomen open than my skull taken off, but that's just me. But is that something in practice that you would envision as well in, a, in an algorithmic approach? You know, it's an interesting question. I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody's algorithm where they put it first, but there's no reason it couldn't be. Um, you know, first of all, decompressive craniectomy has been studied in a randomized trial and has shown to be ineffective in improving outcomes. So it, given that, I'm not sure why you couldn't move it sort of uh, later in, in your algorithm. Uh, the problem with laparotomy is, it, it, you know, it's just sort of, I think, um, uh, there, there was a case series of 17 patients, and that's really, a lot, you know, the bulk of the literature uh, having used it personally, anecdotally, I can tell you that it works very well. But, you know, you're talking about uh, one therapy, craniectomy, that's been studied and shown to be ineffective in terms of outcome, and another therapy which hasn't really been studied uh, at all for long-term outcome, but both of which are very effective in reducing ICP, which again goes back to, the, the you know, one of the primary places we started is that I think there's mounting evidence that, you know, we, we are, we're a little off in, in the focus of our care, and we've been solely focused on managing ICP and CPP, 
And there's mounting evidence that maybe that's not the right approach. And, you know, maybe one, because it's pretty far removed from anything that really matters, which is how's the brain tissue doing. Um, but you have multiple therapies that have been studied that are all very effective in lowering ICP and none of which improve outcome. Um, so uh, that th there you have it. I, you know, I think you could place laparotomy anywhere you wanted on your uh, sort of later tier therapies, um, and, and no one could sort of, uh, you know, say whether it was right or wrong. I think it's sort of uh, physician choice. Well, we seem to open the abdomen for, for less grave uh, scenarios than exactly and severe ICP with impending herniation. So, um, Dr. Levine, can I go back and ask a question about temperature control again? We talked about hypothermia. Yes. What's your guideline or algorithm at your place, then, for maintaining normothermia? Fever's bad for the brain. The febrile brain connotation, what's your algorithm? Right. So, you know, that's an, an interesting area because across a wide variety of brain injuries, there's a consistent strong and independent association between fever and poor outcome. And it's so pronounced that if you take, for example, someone who comes in with a stroke, an ischemic stroke, for every one degree Celsius above normal their admission temperature is, their odds of dying are double. I mean, that's sort of shocking. One degree of abnormally elevated temperature doubles your risk of dying. Now, that's all we know, um, and I think there are two possible explanations for this. One is that fever is really bad for the brain, and it contributes to ongoing injury. And the other is that when the brain is injured, since the brain controls temperature, specifically the hypothalamus, you get a fever. And it has nothing to do with, you know, the fever itself might not be damaging. It's just a marker that there's severe injury. Now, if you look at animal experiments, it's pretty clear that fever causes worsening brain injury. But there's really no great data that that's true in humans. We just don't know. So everyone sort of, I think, tries to err on the safe side and says, well, you know, because of this strong association that's independent of other predictors of that outcome, we need to make the temperature normal. And I think that's reasonable, um, given that we don't know whether there's a causal relationship or not. But then the question becomes, how long do you do that for? It's very, it's not so easy to keep the temperature normal. Um, you know, a fever by definition means that the brain's set point for temperature is elevated, and it's basically telling, you know, the rest of the body to mount a, a higher temperature. And when you try to force normothermia on that patient, they shiver, and that's probably not good. It increases metabolic demand. Uh, then you need to use medications to abolish the shivering, and that can alter the level of arousal of the patient and can cause complications. And so it becomes a little bit of a morass, and it's something we struggle with all the time. I think most of us at my place, we have a protocol that states to keep the temperature normal. We use surface cooling devices, uh, you know, uh, and there are a variety of them out there. Um, and it's cumbersome and uh, increases the, um, the therapeutic intensity in the ICU. Uh, it's hard for the nursing staff. 
Um, and then we're always asking, well, when do we stop this? You know, it's now day 10 and they still have a fever um, and we just don't know the answer. And I think even in our place where we have a protocol, there's still a lot of individual physician variation in how long they'll continue normothermia. You know, I feel that the first couple of days, I think most people would do it. But then when you get to day four, five, six, I, I think you get attrition. And, you know, many of the physicians would stop doing it at that point. Um, you know, brain injury comes hand in hand with fever. Uh, you know, most patients with severe brain injury develop a fever. And I think obviously once you've ruled out infection by going through multiple rounds of cultures and imaging studies, you're left sort of, um, you know, uh, with the idea that it's caused, you know, it's from the brain injury or a central fever, and we just don't know how long to treat that. Um, I, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that one method of maintaining normothermia is better than the other. There are, you know, intravascular cooling catheters, surface cooling devices. Uh, you can infuse ice-cold saline, which we do as well. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's just sort of take your pick. Whatever one the institution will purchase, I think, is the one we would use. May I ask you a question about nutrition? May I, Levi? Yeah, I was getting ready sure. to ask the same thing. Go ahead. Well, the guidelines are, are pretty straightforward and consistent with what we're doing with most of our injured patients. Feed them early, reach their nutritional goals by about a week. Uh, what do you feed your brain trauma patients? Yeah. Is there anything you don't feed your brain trauma patients? No. Are you referring to, like, arginine-based uh, nutritional formulas, Andrew? Like avoidance really of arginine? Some, some people yeah. have been concerned that uh, some of the immune-enhancing diets, rich in arginine, might contribute to uh, synthesis of glutamate, which can be associated with uh, with neuronal injury. What's your What's your approach? What do you feed them, or what do you avoid feeding them? That's what I mean. Well, you know, we really don't avoid feeding them anything. I don't know whether that's right or wrong, um, but what we feel strongly about is that they need to be fed early. Um, you know, there's a there's a at least some suggestion in the literature that there's a dose dependent. Uh, relationship between delay in feeding and mortality after TBI. And in the literature, early is defined as within a few days, but in, in our ICU, our goal was to get everyone up to full caloric needs within 24 hours, um, which would be, I guess, on the very aggressive side in the literature. Um, one of the things that surprised me about the recommendations um, in the current guideline is the idea that the feeds have to be post-pyloric or should be post-pyloric. Yeah. That's not something we typically do. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not an expert in nutrition, but I once looked into this literature because, I, you know, I sort of had to make protocols for our ICU. And I tried to figure out where this idea of post-pyloric feeding reducing uh, pneumonia came from, and it didn't seem like it came from anywhere other than it was stated by an author decades ago in a paper as a fact because it must be true, and then it was sort of assumed. Now, they do quote, a, I think, a meta-analysis of some sort that looked at post-pyloric versus, uh, you know, uh, ga gastric feeding and said that, you know, the meta-analysis at least suggested a, a reduction in ventilator-associated pneumonia when the tube was post-pyloric. I, I have not seen or read that, but I certainly will. Um, you know, the only 
the only data specifically in brain injury I'm aware of, and I think it was in TBI, was an abstract that I don't think was ever published where they looked at continuous feeding into the stomach versus continuous feeding uh, into the small bowel, and they suggested that continuous feeding into the stomach was uh, associated with, uh, you know, reduced um, complications. So right now we feed everything. You know, we just use a standard tube feed regimen. We try to get them up to full caloric needs within 24 hours, and we feed continuously uh, into the stomach. I have uh, one last question. It's kind of one of those uh, ones that Andrew and I struggle with, even amongst within our group, and it's the severely brain-injured person, and then the early, who defines what is an early tracheostomy, and does it even matter? Because all the, you know, the largest randomized trials, not necessarily looking at brain injury, but early trach versus late, right. doesn't show any difference. So, I mean, there's there's clearly the patients we've all seen where you trach the patient and they're off the ventilator in 24 hours, and that's got to be better yeah. than sitting on the vent, getting sedation and whatnot. So from your practice standpoint, how do you kind of reconcile that decision-making? Yeah, I, this is a this is a an area where I think if you ask most intensive care physicians, they you know, they might say that, well, it makes sense that an early trach is better, just that we've had – a damn hard time showing that in the literature. And, you know, what I can tell you is that we do tend to put trachs in on the early side. And what I mean by early is it's someone who's severely injured and we're not actively managing uh, the brain anymore in terms of, like, lowering ICP or dealing with other brain crises. I, I wouldn't send someone for what I would consider a, a, essentially a semi-elective procedure well, they're critically ill from a brain standpoint, but once that resolves, if we are pretty sure it's going to be a prolonged intubation, we'll put a trach in as soon as possible. Um, and there is, um, to my recollection, a trial that's underway now. I think it's called Setpoint, although I'm not sure about that, that's actually randomizing patients to early versus delayed tracheostomy with brain injury, and I, I, they're not including traumatic brain injury, but they're including subarachnoid hemorrhage, ischemic stroke, hemorrhagic stroke, and, you know, aside from that, I'm not aware of any real literature in the brain-injured population in particular that, that speaks to it, but that will be, I think, the first randomized trial in this, pop, you know, in, at least in a neurologically injured population. So, you know, again, I think that uh, we tend to, you know, I, I guess, to come to our own biases and say that probably an early trach is better, but I don't think anyone could be faulted for disagreeing with that. Did you have anything else to add? Go ahead, Andrew. No, my personal approach is uh, what I teach the residents is early trach doesn't mean trach everybody as early as possible. It means trach the people early who you think are going to ventilate long as a result of their neurologic impairment from the brain trauma. But those young yeah, ones I think that, that's right. that, I agree with that don't have a terrible exam and don't have a terrible scan, I'll tend to give them a few days because it's amazing how much those young brain-injured patients can change over just a few days. And I feel like they're going to evolve and improve, evolve in a good way. I'll give them a few days and watch them. But you're right. Boy, everybody has their own view of it. I'm glad you do too, Dr. Levine. I'm glad you, uh, yeah. glad you see it the right. same way with all your experience. Right. I think you're, you're, what you said is very important, though. I think you have to take into account 
the natural history of the disease you're dealing with. So, for example, you know, in our ICU, we'll have patients with respiratory failure from Guillain-Barre syndrome, and we'll keep them intubated for two, three weeks because we know that they're going to get better, and we don't necessarily trach them just because of some arbitrary uh, amount of time that they're going to be intubated. We take into account the fact that the vast majority of the time, they're going to recover their respiratory muscle function. And I think the same is true here. If we had a TBI patient that I thought was likely going to improve, I also would give them a few more days rather than rushing into it. So I completely agree with what you just said. Is there anything that you see just as a as a kind of closing on your end that you see commonly as pet peeves that you that you wish other people would just get it and do it uh, when it comes to taking care of the brain injured patient, or does it seem like everyone's kind of you know doing the right thing? Uh, because a lot of this is it appears to be just like common sense, so to speak, like make the human right. normal, and that's the best for the brain. Right. I guess my pet peeve, if I had to pick one. <laughs> would be that I think a lot of people somehow feel that these numbers that we adhere to, like an ICP of 20 as a threshold for, you know, uh, acting is some kind of a magical number and that it applies to every single patient. And I think it's important for people to realize that if you take a very large population of people, it is true that those who have an ICP of greater than 20 do worse than those who have an ICP below 20. But that doesn't apply to every individual patient. And sort of one analogy would be if I took a survey of every American man and asked their waist size, and let's say on average it was size 34, and then I issued size 34 pants to every man in the country, you'd have a lot of unhappy men. Um, and that's what we do with these numbers. We sort of take for gospel some something magical about 20. And, you know, from, from practice, it's very clear that there are some patients, particularly maybe younger patients, who are in trouble with an ICP of 16 or 17 or 18. And then there are some patients who have an ICP of 25 and who are awake and talking to me. And so I, I think that we have to sort of recognize that the approach that we use right now is really population-based, that we should attempt to use other tools, including examining the patient, to determine the impact of those numbers on the person. And, you know, medicine's all about treating the patient, not about treating a number uh, or, or even a film sometimes. And so I think that's, uh, you know, my pet peeve. I've seen people try to chase down the number 20 and end up hurting people because they're delivering so many therapies just to get the, the ICP down by a couple of points. And that may or may not be appropriate. And I think sort of um, that's sort of the next stage of evolution of this field is individualizing these numbers a little bit more. Yeah, that speaks part. I mean, that's one of the most fundamental things to try to teach everybody that people forget. I mean, I always quote David King, pressure doesn't equal flow and flow does not equal perfusion. And no matter what type of resuscitation you're doing, you always have to collate the whole picture and put the puzzle together. And that's really hard, And that, but that's why we do what we do. So it, I agree 100% that chasing a single isolated value and expecting a human to get better seems somewhat ridiculous. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that's sort of 
you know, it's incumbent upon us to teach that to our trainees. <laughs> you know, where do these numbers come from and what do they mean? And, that, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to be a doctor and put the whole puzzle together, like you said. And that's, uh, you know, in my opinion, how to best take care of people. Well, this has been awesome. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Levine, and, and I appreciate uh, my co-moderator, Andrew, for participating. He always has very insightful comments. Uh, oh, on, thanks on for behalf the invitation, Levi. Yeah, it was just thanks awesome. Thank you, Dr. I, uh, Levi and uh, Dr. Levine. This is terrific. Thanks for your time. Thank uh, you very much, Take the wisdom. And that wraps up another TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section for the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great online educational and career resources on the website, www.east.org. Please make sure that you also subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, networking, building relationships, and career development, remember, all that you need to do is look to the East. Mm -hmm.